This series is brought to you by our exclusive partner, Globe West. Welcome to the House of Style podcast, a conversation series where we talk to prominent Australian interiors figures about their design journey, what inspires them and where they're headed. This is a deep dive into their past, present and futures, discussing what it takes to become an iconic figure in today's interiors landscape. With our background as style editors, we've crossed paths with some incredible furniture and homewares brands, designers, artists and makers. This is our way to share their inspiring stories with you, the listener. I'm interior stylist Kerry ann Jones. And I'm interior designer John O'Fleming. And welcome to the House of Style. Kerry ann I can't believe we're at the end of season two. I know. A lot has changed since the first episode. That's for sure. But regardless, we have powered ahead. Yes, absolutely. And we want to thank everyone out there for tuning in. It's been a very special series and we couldn't have done it without your support. And we have a very special guest lined up for this season finale. I think iconic might be a good word to describe her. Or I would also say the fairy godmother of interiors. This episode, we talked to the one and only Karen McCartney. Karen McCartney. I mean... Her name has been popping up in this podcast ever since season one. Yeah, I know. It seems nearly everyone has crossed paths with her at one point or another. Yeah, Karen is an editor, author, a creative and an all-round fountain of knowledge when it comes to design. Yeah, her career has been absolutely legendary and her books that she's released are absolutely gorgeous. We follow her journey through growing up in Belfast to having a career in London and eventually settling in Australia. And when she got here, Australia never let her go again. I know. (laughs) Karen, as you said, is iconic and she's an important figure in the Australian design industry. She is the perfect person to round up this series for women in design. And tune in next week for part one of our two bonus episodes where we're going to be interviewing each other. That's going to be fun. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Karen McCartney and thank you for stopping by the House of Style. Karen, thank you so much for joining us today on the House of Style. It's my pleasure. Uh, We're in a very brave new world at the moment, but we're going to roll this episode out as as we always do, and we'll take it back to the beginning. So, you grew up in Belfast. We're going all the way back to Ireland. Can you tell us a bit about your upbringing and what was it like? Well, Ireland then, you know, it had the troubles, you know, so it was a, it was a kind of quite dark time when I look back on it. But, but when you're growing up, it just is your world. So you just kind of get on with things really. Um, and it was also a time. Northern Ireland, uh, Belfast took to punk in a big way. So in my teen years, it was all about going to op shops and, and looking for the perfect black stiletto and going to markets and getting clothes and re, re-stitching them into something else and um, sneaking off to dodgy pubs down at the docks and so forth. So um, <laughs> we managed to have a lot of fun, even though it was um, not the most optimistic context. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. My grandma used to talk to me about growing up in Berlin during the war, and she talked to him those days with like so much 
fondness almost about having so much fun with her friends. And yeah, it's a very similar story. Well, I mean, I had quite a middle class background, so I wouldn't um, put hardship high on the on the the list. Um, and, um, you know, I had a very supportive family. I went to a good school. So I, I was lucky in, in that sense. You know, there were soldiers on the streets, but it didn't affect me in the way that affected um, other people. Um, so I was sort of lucky in, in, in a way. Um, but I think, um, to your point, John, all, all kids and teenagers, you're kind of self-absorbed. So you sort of... Um, you know, you do your own thing with your friends and the context just kind of rolls around you. Mm, yeah. yeah. Oh, interesting. So you grew up there. Did you study in Belfast too or? No, I went straight to London. I couldn't, couldn't wait to get away. Um, and ah. so at 18, I went, I went in this, um, the summer before before university and worked in Camden in a very kind of dodgy place called the Camden Palace, um, which was a sort of uh, punk nightclub venue. And I was a barmaid. And so I, I did, um, they offered me a management position because I wasn't stealing from the till. So that was one <laughs> of the um, things that, that made you a good employee if you weren't nicking stuff. And then I worked in a pizza restaurant and also did a stall in Camden Market, kind of selling things that I'd find in jumble sales. So I always tried to be quite proactive about what I could do alongside study to kind of earn some money. What I kind of love about all of that is that it's very telling to maybe what is your job now of that you have a lot of fingers in different pies and you're doing all sorts of different things. It's it's It wasn't just one thing. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's that thing of m- making your own luck really and and driving things you know your yourself mm. yeah. so what did you study what um when you went to london i did um history of art and english and it was a very good course i did amazing tutors and um i mean the first year you're just out of school so you don't treat it properly you kind of try and get away with doing as little as possible but as time went <laughs> on i really got into it and and really loved the course yeah what was it about art and English that drew you to that degree? Well, I, I guess um, I did it. It was sort of lazy in a way. I'd done history of art and English as at A level, which you, you do in the UK. And um, I, I was good at those subjects. And I didn't really have a sense of vocation. You know, I didn't know what mm. job I might ever end up doing. So, who, who does that at that age? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> when you leave school, how do you know what you want to do? <laughs> well, I think you just head, try and head in the right direction and hope for the best. So after studying, what happened next? Like, How did you sort of fall into the magazine industry? Well, I was I was doing my um, stall at, at Camden Market, and I, I met a, a woman who was um, a fashion editor on a magazine called Nineteen, and um, she was looking for an assistant, and so I just started to assist her, and I sort of couldn't believe it was a job. You know, we'd get black cabs from one PR cl- clothes PR to the next fashion PR, and um, we'd select things, and then I'd help her on the shoots, and. Um, She's an amazing person, and she's you know we're friends to to this day um, for for supporting for supporting me and um, yeah so that sort of got me interested in the whole world of magazines. That's amazing. 
I'm still, I can't imagine you as a punk, like selling punk sort of. <laughs> I've got pictures to prove it. <laughs> I wasn't super hardcore. It was sort of um, soft, you know, sort of um, lots of flicky eye makeup and back combing. I have the most wild picture in my head and I love it. <laughs> so that was like your sort of segue into magazines. So what, how did you get into, into writing and, and then editing? Um, like, which was sort of what what happened next? I guess. Uh, well, I um, I started to work then for a hair magazine. That's my favourite bit that I found out about you. <laughs> <laughs> it was called Hair Flare, and somebody thought it was a sort of stylish German gentleman, you know, Hair Flare. And it was so. It was one of those magazines that was kind of compiled with um, free he- headshots from the hair industry. And so I would write endless captions, and you know, you'd make up features and and so forth. So uh, actually, it was a tremendous training. It was a really tiny team, just an editor and I, and you know you had to be really versatile and think on your feet and think of different ways to kind of present this free content um mm-hmm. very much it's actually very much of today to be honest um so that was and then that magazine was bought by a bigger company and i started to work then on a it was one of the early um publications it was called the marks and spencer magazine the mns magazine so redwood publishing they did a magazine for american express and then um this was another one of those kind of um retailer um customer magazines is that where you met neil whittaker on that magazine well, I got Neela's job on that. Um, when when I left that when I left that magazine, he'd written into the um, publishing company, and I thought, oh well, if I want to move on to this, if if I can find somebody really good to um, you know take my role, then that would be a, a really good thing. So Neil had been in PR prior, and because it was a customer magazine, those PR skills were really useful in dealing with the whole business of it. So Neil was the perfect person to take over that role. Oh, there you go. In our 17 or so episodes we've done so far, Karen, there is a recurring theme of Karen McCartney popping up in people's stories. (laughs) I think Neil was the first one to drop your name and um, keeps popping up. Yeah, because then when I, um, much later when I was in Marie Claire Lifestyle, we needed a food director and that's when we brought Neil out to Australia. So I've had a number of kind of, and he lived in my house actually in London for a while when when we were overseas. So lots of points of connection there. Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> um, so you ended up working at writing at L Decoration in the UK. Was that your first foray into the homes area? Yes. I Look, to be honest, I didn't write for them very much. Um, it was an, an interesting thing where I, I went for a job there as deputy editor when Ilsa Crawford was editor, and I just oh. had a baby. Um, I just had Mac. And so it was a kind of ideal job. But the woman who was the, I can't remember what her role was, the publisher, I just, we just didn't click. And I found her really harsh. And I thought, I can't have a baby and work for a woman who's really, Ilsa was wonderful and would have been so inspiring to work for. Um, But in the end, I just, I didn't pursue it because um, it just, the fit it didn't it didn't feel right um but yes i i sort of started 
an interest. Before that, I'd, I'd sort of been freelance fashion editor, which I think I was sort of capable at without being very good. The homewares I felt much more my thing, my speed. And also in certain stages of life, things feel more appropriate than others. So it felt good to make that move into that side of things. I think that's, that's actually interesting. We've had other guests as well who were in the fashion space. And when they had kids, came when kids came along, they move into the homeware space as well because yes. they said fashion just doesn't feel right at that point. Yeah. Very true. When did you um, move to Australia? How did that all come about? Well, that was, we had visited, I married an Australian and we lived in London for many years. And then we visited and I thought, oh, it would, we'd just done up our house in London. And I thought, is this it? Is this, you know, I've got the husband, the child, the house, is, is, is there going to be no more adventure in life? So we went to, um, visited Australia and I said to David, why don't we just come for two years? Um, and um, it took a while to get all the paperwork done. I know that's the thing I haven't left. And so um, that's what we did. We, we came out and my friend Martin Thompson, the photographer, was aware that um, Jackie Frank, who edited Marie Claire, was looking for a team for Marie Claire Lifestyle to launch. And so I was lucky enough to get a job on, on uh, de- as deputy editor on Marie Claire Lifestyle. Jackie was going off to have her first baby. And um, yeah, I kind of st- I was deputy for the first issue and then um, editor for the for the next um, several issues. Was that your first big editor position? Essentially, no, I've been an editor a couple of times in the UK. Um, right. So I kind of, I mean, I think it was Australia was new to me, and the context of Australia was new to me. Um, but the actual mechanics of a magazine that that wasn't new. Um, and, you know, I such I worked with such great people then, you know, Donna Hay was the food editor, Jane Rorty was the creative director, um, Andrea Healy was the art director. So there was a really amazing... Oh, I love Andrea. She's fantastic. She's so talented. And so we had this amazing group of people and, and, and this opportunity. What an incredible team. Yeah, it was an incredible team. Vanessa Holden was involved at that stage. Um, and, um, yeah, so it was a really talented um, group of people. Well, it was such a – it was a very different magazine to what was around at the time, and it was very special. And it's it went away, but now it's back again. It's back. I've actually styled the cover of the recent issue. <laughs> oh, really? So – that's fantastic. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah, I, I wasn't aware of that. It's um, it it, it uh, Murdoch magazines, which was run by Matt Handry at the time. He um was going. He was launching something called Live This and Live This. I think Trudy was editing. Trudy Jenkins was editing that, and it had you know was meant to have TV and all sorts of all sorts of um, multi a multimedia play in a way. And so uh, I had left by that time. Neil was editing the magazine. I'd gone to Inside Out. And, um, you know, they, they didn't give it long enough. And I look back at those old issues and how well designed they were, and it doesn't feel like it is dated. It sort of holds its own. I think it was just a little bit maybe ahead of its time um, and given time would have come into its own. Maybe yeah. maybe now is its time <laughs> again. Yeah. Try the, the two. <laughs> Never know. 
Okay, so then you went over to launch Inside Out, which this is a very, very special part of this conversation with you because Inside Out, especially when you were editing it, was one of the most highly respected. It was just so amazing. I'm lost for words to actually describe how I'm trying to feel about it. I mean, I know that I definitely looked forward to every issue when you were editing. It was just such a beautiful surprise every issue. It it was just Mm. so exciting. Um, Lots of people have mentioned, you know, that we've chatted to that they also loved the magazine when you were editor as well. So it's not just us. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. and especially because you started it in 2000, I think. Yeah, and, you know, through that time I was attending uni and it was such, we used to call it the Bible because it was an incredible mix of inspiration, aspirational, but accessible, and there was an educational aspect to Inside Out, teaching people about design and respecting design. Mm. What, What was your vision going into it? Um, it was very interesting. They'd done a lot of research. And at that time, there was a sort of gap in the market um, between your more um, mass titles, and then you had Bell and Vogue Living. Um, so there was this sort of bit of, bit of a gap. And um, so, so they had the research to respond to. And, and so I was just very keen on, on that that idea, just as you say, Jono, of not assuming that everybody knew everything. I mean, if, if you Vogue Living is a magazine, I, I admire greatly, but there's a kind of a sumptive knowledge um, that you can throw in these designer names and everybody will know who you're talking about. So we tried to keep um, a really great variety of um, styles in the magazine, of home styles, so that my view was I didn't, everything didn't need to reflect me, but it needed to be a good version of what it was. So if it was um, a kind of uh, shabby chic kind of look, it kind of needed to be the best example of that look. If it was a mid-century look, it had to be. So really great examples. And then we sort of pioneered those pages that ran after the home stories that weren't just to get the look, they were actually a dissection, a deconstruction of what was going on in in the um, home and how then to arm people that they might then enact that themselves or at least take away knowledge, as you said, and and kind of feel more informed about about interiors. So that was very much the the idea behind it. Mm. And how how long were you the editor there for? I was editor for 10 years um, and worked with, you know, again, really great people, um, you know, David Hutton and Tracy Lines and um, Glenn. Glenn, of course, um, who's gone on to have such an amazing career. And he, he, he was, yeah, he's, he's Glenn is just an amazing person. And, um, you know, that talent was there at the beginning. And for those, for those listening, um, this is Glenn Probstall, who is now the vision behind every major interiors and homewares campaign you probably see all over the internet <laughs> and Instagram and everywhere. He's he's incredible. He he really is he really is incredible. And he had um he was introduced to me by our food um editor Sue Fairley Cunningham. And he he'd only really styled windows and, and things like that 
for um, Empire Homewares. And so um, Sue introduced me to him and we, we, put, we paired him with other stylists so that he could kind of look and see and learn. And of course, he took to it like a duck to water and really <laughs> kind of understood it and made it his own very, very quickly. So some of those um, really beautiful kind of seminal shoots that he did with, with Sharon Cairns, you know, they really, they kind of shifted the dial in terms of um, creativity and styling and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. What what were you looking for in those cover homes back then? Covers were always a nightmare. You know, it, it always astounded me that you could have a, a magazine filled with really great images and still not have a, the cover that somehow summed it up. Um, and mm. so I think our covers evolved a lot. Um, you know, I think that first cover, you know, we're under a lot of pressure to get it out. And, mm. you know, I, I must admit, I, I don't love it. Um, times have changed a lot, I guess, and our visual sensibility mm. has changed. But even at the time, you know, we were trying to tick so many boxes to say how we were different. Um, and and I, so I think as that relaxed over time, um, and then when Tracy Lines came on board, we sort of got a bit more of a feminine aesthetic and that was reflected in the covers and we could do details as well as full homes and, and, and we could mm-hmm. kind of mix it up so that every time you knew that there was a new issue, it didn't feel like, oh, have I got that one already? Is that close to, you know, we really wanted to kind of play with scale and color and, and, and really kind of, like you said, Earlier, create that excitement in there's a new issue out and and um so so we we kind of did a lot of things that have now become quite you know more commonplace um but at yeah. the time you know where um again in, in that kind of education space and you know we now have a much more informed consumer um to do with the internet, but also to do with things like this that kind of um, help people understand, demystify it in a way that it wasn't just the preserve of the extremely um, wealthy with an interior designer, that these were things that you could action yourself. Some of that messaging still is in the magazine today. Mm. I mean, David, your husband writes still for Inside Out. His article in particular is that same educational thing of, here is the tradition, here's the, you know, classic piece of furniture mm. or object, and here's the updated one. And the knowledge that he can impart to an audience is really amazing. He, he should have, in another life, been a curator in a museum or something. His, his knowledge is just amazing. And um, I'm sort of superficial and kind of that looks nice. And yes, I can make a million decisions. But he really goes in deep and understands, you know, that the leg shape changed in 1973 on that chair. And, uh, you know, so he's a kind of font of knowledge that's always been great. To draw on, and he's got his own book coming out um, in December, no October, called "A Century of Color in Design." So it's a really lovely thing that kind of draws on what you were saying, John, of that kind of knowledge and selection and 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 so forth. So that's through Thames and Hudson. So that's a good one to look out for. I will be keeping my eyes peeled for that one. <laughs> Looking forward to it. So while you were at um, Inside Out, what were some of your proudest moments there? I was thinking about that question and it's, um, you know, I, I don't really um, dwell in the past an awful lot or, or, or look back. I kind of tend to, to, to look forward. And so I had to, had to think about that. And I think um, a lot of it, 
in all the things that I'm proud of in my career come down to the people that I've met as a result and the friendships that I've made and what I've learned through the process. So, yes, it's lovely to have this physical thing, whether it's a magazine or a book or whatever. But really, um, that's only as as you know, and it might sell really well, it might sell less well, whatever. But it's really the the knowledge that I've gained along the way and, and the people. So yeah, I'm, I'm proud of what, you know, we produced in Inside Art as a team, and um, always will be. But I, I, I don't really think of it in terms of um, singular successes. Specific things, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, something that did happen at Inside Out, though, was you compiled the book Creative Homes, which we came across, again, when digging through the archive. <laughs> and it, it's this amazing time capsule of celebrities and interest, industry figures. You've put all their houses into one book. And a lot of these people are still industry figures we know today. Was that your first Putting your toe into, into book publishing? <laughs> Um, yes, I can't remember the chronology, whether what year year that was. I had done um, my own book the in 2006 or seven, the Iconic Houses book. So, But this was the first one, I think, of the brand. Um, so it was a way we had a, a section at the front of the magazine called A Weekend With, which was meant to be this kind of um, combination of a look at people's houses in their downtime and how they, you know, spent a weekend. So it allowed us to kind of um, have a sense of place and context as well as the house itself. So sometimes you had somebody who was um, had an amazing house, but then other times you have people who were maybe more well-known that you were curious about their space, but you could also shoot them at their favourite coffee shop or going for, a, a, you know, a walk at a favourite spot. So you could kind of flesh it out to kind of get a really genuine sense of that that person and so um when we came to do creative homes we sort of had a lot of people that we'd already been in contact with and and had maybe shot some of their places and so we could kind of draw on that content to to shape this this book um that as you say is a sort of time capsule of of um creativity in in Australia at that period. Well, I guess that takes us into the present. Let's talk books then, because you mentioned your book, 50s, 60s, 70s, Iconic Houses. And you've said before that that was inspired from living in your own home, your beautiful Bruce Rickard designed home. But when you were compiling that book, you know, what did you learn about design and Australian design from researching these properties? Oh, I just learned so much. It was a complete education for me because, you know, uh, Marie Claire Lifestyle and so with it, really it was about the interior experience and, and architecture is a whole other ball game. Yeah. Um, and so we moved into this house in 2000 um, where I'm s- still sitting, being interviewed today. And it's... Um, the architect, um, as you mentioned, John or Bruce Rickard, he hated public speaking. So he would get his clients to come and, and talk. So once when I was very pregnant, he got me to go to the Institute, the Architects Institute, and talk about why I liked living in, in one of his houses. And that was very confronting. But it also made me think of why do I like living in, in his house? What it, What is it about it? And so, because um, previously I'd never lived in an architect designed house. I'd lived in a kind of, you know, Victorian terrace in London and, and so forth. So these considerations were not things that I'd really thought of in 
the past. Um, and so I began to um, look at the house and, and, and um, understand it in a new way. So I then thought, well, if this house exists, there must be others. There must be other good examples of mid-century architecture in Australia. And um, I put forward a book proposal. My friend Michael Wee, who's the photographer, said, oh, Murdoch Books are looking for ideas. And I put it together, a bit of a proposal. And they went, yes, we'll, we'll, we'll do that. And so then I had to find them, which was really daunting. How did you do that? That would be a huge process to try and find all these houses. It was a huge process. And and also, you know, I wanted the right architects. They needed also to have, um, you know, a great body of work. I needed to find a great example. I needed to find an example that we could shoot. So it needed to have the right, um, you know, look and look and feel the right. It couldn't be a modernist house with a big, you know, floral sofa in it. It needed to reflect the aesthetic of the exterior. Um, so... Yeah, it was hard work finding them all, but it was so worth it. And and also I felt very nervous in this world of architecture that I would be judged poorly being, you know, coming from a um, lifestyle magazine background. So I put so much work into understanding it and, um, you know, playing back to the architects what I'd written to make sure that it was correct and so forth. So, I mean, that book has just been, it just hit a time and it's been in print really for all that time and, and just in November I launched a compilation and re-released yeah so it, it sort of had such a great lifespan it's been really wonderful I mean the cover home the um Hugh Burick design yes. house is just I mean iconic is the right word for it there's no <laughs> other word for it <laughs> It took over a year to get it all together, just just finding the places and finding the people and um, getting access. Um, so yeah, it, it was quite quite a big quite a big project. And mm. then I was so because I was working full time, and I'd take my daughter to her ballet lessons, and I'd sit in the car and and write it. Um, oh so you know, it was done in between doing other things in between ballet lessons. Um, <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Taking time management to another level. <laughs> it's, it, it was quite a time before I could, you know, look at doing the other one. But I think, and um, then creative homes. I'd sort of been the book through the book process, mm. so I understood what what was um, required. And so, so, so that idea of capturing creative people at home, you know, that that's something that actually has gained a lot of traction. You know, every so often you see another one, and and each is fit for its time and gets a um, new group of people, which really I, I love that sense of capturing creativity in that way. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, but maybe it's because you live in a, you know, architect design home of that period. You're very associated with that look and style. What is it about that mid-century Australian home that is so iconic? What what was it that created these timeless houses? I think it was a period in Australia where um, suddenly there was a lot more exposure to, through magazines and, and so forth, to what was happening in, in America with the Eames um, and and Lautner mm. and all these different architects. So, and, and our, uh, young architects began to travel. Like Bruce Rickard, for example, you know, he he um, travelled to America. He was very interested in landscape, and so they they came back um, 
with a kind of renewed aesthetic, like Grusman uh, went to Japan and so forth. So, so they kind of brought back to Australia these different um, aesthetics. And we build here, you know, we have land. So there were opportunities yeah. to actually express that. Uh, a lot of the houses were very modest. I mean, our house is, is not particularly large. It's very um, well and thoughtfully constructed, but it's simple. And people demanded, you know, they, people, it's simpler houses. It's all about the setting in nature, how it faces the view, these kind of considerations, which are different to some of the considerations today. Well, I guess light is such an important factor to design around in Australia as well. All of these architects really were considering how light plays into building a house. Light and, and materials and simple yeah. use of materials and, and extending, you know, that idea of inside to out, which is such a kind of common thing nowadays. But, you know, Bruce Rickard took the, the, the same bricks run through the... Um, the glazing so that the eye just, you know, glides from one space to the other. So very, um, it was a very formative time because a lot of those considerations play out now um, mm. and have continued to kind of influence contemporary architecture. Yeah. It was funny you mentioned materials because my grandparents actually lived in two houses designed by Hugh Burek when he came out from Germany with them. And apparently he did the most beautiful sandstone fireplace in the middle of the house in that very mid-century fashion. And she boarded it up and wallpapered it over because she thought it looked too cold to have stone inside the house. Oh, no. <laughs> um, but I, I think that was quite common when you read about Harry Seidler's house for his mother. You know, she was forbidden from, from using her Viennese tea set. You know, she, ha he ha mm -hmm. she had to use the Russell Wright tea set that was yeah. modernist and so forth. So, yes, I can understand just the aesthetics sometimes, just people weren't ready for it. Some of the architects in the book have disowned their houses because they just don't feel they represent their aesthetic anymore um, mm. and you know a lot of the land which was cheap when these houses were built has now become valuable and a lot of them were lightweight houses and have just been pushed over reclad or just changed beyond recognition yeah well i think that's why what you do is so important to preserve and highlight how special some of these properties are and that we have to respect them and keep them alive. Yes, yes, it's a it's a tricky one because people want to be able to do whatever they want to their house. So it's um, it's kind of yeah, it's it's shining a light. I mean, some people I approached didn't want their house featured because they felt it would draw heritage attention. Um, mm. So you know, it, it's a it's such a mixed bag, but it 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 is really important, and I think there is a growing awareness. Um, of how special some of these places are. Yeah. So um, coming back to your books, how do you find inspiration for like each concept? Because they're also, you know, a few of them are quite different. Like you've got the white rooms. Yes. Perfect, perfect. How did you come up with those concepts? What's the process behind each of them? Gosh, well, um, each process is a bit different. I mean, Superhouse was, an, uh, was a way of kind of capturing global houses that had something really distinctive about them. And it wasn't about just about money or, or whatever. And I was very careful to write a criteria for what, um, to me, constituted a Superhouse. So it might have been use of materials or land um, or the concept. 
Um, and so that had quite a few Australian and New Zealand houses, but also globally, um, a lot of interesting houses. But when I, I worked with a photographer called Richard Powers on that, and when yeah. I was going through his archive, I saw, oh, he's got a lot of these white rooms and white houses. And, mm. you know, when we'd done a white cover on Inside Out, it had always done really well. And I thought, well, maybe there's a sort of more pleasing, you know, not so highbrow book that was just beautiful to look at and and mm. so that book was drawn out of the idea of his archive as a way of just going you know I think there are about eight or nine complete homes and then there's bedrooms here's you know 30 white bedrooms 30 white living rooms and so forth so it was a kind of inspiration book quite out of in a way out of the inside out Sort of so in a, in a way, Superhouse was very uh, high end, big book, um, and physically big and and um, amazing global architects. And this was a much more accessible, um, you know, easy to flick through, easy to find inspiration mm-hmm. type book. So they were a kind of came out kind of quite close. But then, um, Perfect and Perfect and the Alchemy of Things are books that are kind of really close to my heart because they love um, kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, tapping into a sort of eccentricity and um, creativity and people, especially in alchemy of things, you know, people who don't look left or right, they're not interested in trends, they're not interested in what other people are doing, they just utterly do their own thing. And that was very appealing to me at that time because I just thought, um, you know, with Instagram, which I love Instagram, but things get very me too very quickly. And to Mm. celebrate people, you know, a lot of it was coaxing people to have their house featured because they don't care and they don't really necessarily want to have their house featured. How did you find these people if they're not on Instagram because they don't want to show their house to everyone? How did you find them? (laughs) Well, a lot of it was tapping. It was word of mouth. So we're kind of tap into somebody that I knew that was interesting that might know other people that are interesting and mm. and just kind of keeping that kind of um, – and then a couple, if you dig deep, you know, one of the these amazing people, Frederick Hooft in Ghent, he had some images on, on um, online that I found that were quite old, and so then I could sort of – um, you know, go from there. So it was really trying to, yeah, tap into this vein of, uh, and, and it's sort of in a way that book emerged out of Perfect and Perfect because it had a number of people featured alongside um, the smaller craft and creative stories. And I thought really I wanted to draw out that side, like the Martin Thompson chapter. And so, you know, it was a way of, um yeah, that that kind of um, evolved. Those two books evolved, and and obviously working with Glenn and Tracy Lines and Sharon Cairns, it was a great collaborative effort. Per- perfect and perfect. Sorry, I'm talking about. It was a really wonderful, um, you know, yeah, joint creative exercise and the kind of celebration of all the things that we had done together. Mm. Yeah, amazing. How. Do you find book publishing different to magazine publishing? Like, were you able to transition out of that easily? I think um, with magazines, you're much more, you know, you've got a monthly or bi-monthly magazine to put out. You've got to appeal 
to an audience um, in a different way. You know, it needs to be instant. They need to pick it up and buy it there. And then you're judged on your sales figures. You know, was that cover a success or not a success? Um, and so you would try and really meet the needs of, of that audience, um, you know, throughout your however many pages. With a book, um, all those things are still true, but I reckon you, I would take a much more personal cast over it. And I would really feel that I was placing, like with Alchemy, I said to the publishers, this probably isn't, this is a book for um, you know, when we started working on it, it's a book for two years' time. It will be a bit ahead of the curve, but this is where everything is mm-hmm. going. It's more individual kind of yeah. creativity and less trend-driven and, and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, it, it's just that I also, with the books, I would sit there with the designer. I have a very – I can't let it go and go, here's the pictures, here's the text, off you go. I sit – um, Evie O designed um, Alchemy and, and also with Tracy. And that's my favorite part of the process. You know, we just sit and we go through, does that work with that? No, what about that? And we change things and we, and when you have somebody that you're of a very like mind, the, the combination of the two of you gets to that better place. So I've loved that design process working with really great um you know, um, book creative designers. Yeah, wow. I didn't realize that you sat there um, with them and, you know, I guess decide this is a full page or this is a half page and put a quote here or, or that sort of thing. That's very involved. Oh, I just, it just works. And because, um, I mean, with Alchemy, David um, and Michael, David, my husband, did all the styling and Michael, we did all the photography and they went off on a European trip and, you know, they had a great time. I think, I mean, it was a pretty whistle stop tour, but um, they, they, they got so many fantastic images. And, and so, and also David was able to, for some of the people that I couldn't get to, I could give him a list of questions and he could interview them so that I could get their own words and then follow up on email and and phone as well. But it meant that I got some direct, you know, because there's no budget for books. So anything you do, you've got to do pretty creatively um, from that perspective. So um, yeah, and, and then, you know, working with the images to get the right combinations and the right flow of the from one chapter to the next and the cover and so forth so all that is collaborative and that's as I say the bit that I really love. Mm. When you finish a book and it's out and it's released and you've done the press and everything are you already on to the next one or are you do you have a whole list of books that you want to write? You know I sort of I, I got to the point with books where I um I, I've helped some other people. Like I did a book with um, Bell magazine, which mm-hmm. was an architecture book. Um, and then I worked with Will Danger at Danger Baron Smith to, to, to do a garden book. Um, where I kind of concept the idea of, of the book, um, working with Evie O again, and then I would interview him and write it. So I didn't know anything about gardens, but I knew how to put a book together and how to get the right words from him in the same way that I'd done with architects in the past. It's just asking the right questions. It's that journalistic kind of approach. Um, so so there have been other books, and, and recently I've been helping people who want to get a book together do, do that exercise, how to yeah. turn what is a portfolio of work into a proper book, which really is what we did with, with Will. Um, but I haven't um, got another book 
for me, D- David's book, we can only have one book going on in the family <laughs> at any given time. Um, and it needs to be something I really want to do. You know, yeah. it's a tough industry. Um, as I said, there's, there's very little money. A lot falls to the um, author to, to do. Um, and so I need to be really inspired by the concept and and I I've done a lot in a short period of time and I think I kind of need a bit of a a, a rest from it mm. as I say helping other people do it is a really nice way to be involved um, and I've been working with Josh Morris on some of whose expels creative director and some projects and I, I love that all that collaborative stuff really suits where I'm at now I don't necessarily need to do my own in a way until the idea moves me and yeah. um Comes. Yeah. Yeah. In addition to being an author, you've been an editor, you help other people concept with their brands, and you also write for publications. What's it like working for another editor now that you're on the other side of it? You know, it's really interesting. You've got to know where you're position is and even though you've got lots of experience if you're employed as a writer to produce a column or to produce a a feature that is your role Mm. and I just try and do it exactly how I would like it to be provided to me if I was an editor so I'm trying to be really efficient I get the images I get in the right high res I'm I'm always on time I try and be really respectful of whatever editor I'm I'm working with and what I find is over time they recognize your experience and they will ask your advice from time to time on on things just because they they know you've been around the traps but I think you've got to not be arrogant and I think Mm. you've got to you know um know what you're asked to do and and do that to the best of your ability yeah. So I've yeah. always, you know, I think having no airs and graces, if, if it's beneath you to, to do something, don't take it on. Mm-hmm. Um, and don't be, you know, in my day, we did it this way or whatever. Nobody cares, you know, just, just um, do a good job. Yeah, exactly. No, that sounds good. And um, so for this series, obviously the focus is women in design and creative industries. What advice do you have for, for women wanting to work in publishing or even in interiors? You know, I had this girl contact me who um, has just uh, qualified from um, Sydney University and asking me that same question. And I had a long chat with her on the phone. And I think it, it's a really, it is a challenging time. Um, and a bit like you guys, you've got to be a bit inventive about how you approach it. And my advice to her in the end was do something of your own. There's so many platforms where you can be expressive um, that shows what you're capable of and how you would approach an idea and what your aesthetic is and what you, your tone of your writing is. And don't always wait to be commissioned, you know, be proactive, but but also set up something of your own that is your own showcase. Um, because then if you're going for a job, it's a kind of, um, you know, a CV, everybody's got a great CV these days, you know, you can download your template and you all, everybody sounds fabulous. But showing <laughs> something that you've done that really is your own creative idea and, and um, on, on a platform that's easy to access I think it's really important not to just rely on others for your success that that idea that put yourself in the path of luck 
and, and, and increase your, your chances is the way to go. That's excellent advice. And that's for men. That's for men and women, you know, it's sort of, yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's an industry where, you know, it, it celebrates talent. I think it's kind of quite gender neutral. Um, and, and so it's really people who will be, think a bit laterally, be creative, um, show that they've got their finger on the pulse of the way the world is and what people are wanting to hear or see or whatever. Um, yeah, you've got to be proactive. Mm. Yeah, I love that. You've got to, yeah, create your own luck in a way. You've got to, you know, yeah, put your own ideas out there and then then it will come, I guess, and people start seeing what you can do. Yes, exactly. Yeah, no, I love that. Well, I guess that moves us into the future. Working in both magazines and and, and, and publishing in general, you know, times are changing. How do you see the industry moving forward? Is there still a place for magazines, do you think? I think it's going to be really challenging. And I think that the, this pandemic that has shifted how everybody behaves could be both good and bad for magazines. You know, people might form new habits that are more digital. They might actually find comfort in magazines where you, they've got time to sit and read something and actually apply themselves to the content of the pages. I mean, I, I love a magazine and how it's been through a curatorial process. It's been put together by a team of people with a kind of, you know, they've got a great mountain of choice and what they've decided to pull together and, and put into this physical form um, is still really inspiring. Um, but I, 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 it's more the, the context where um, advertising dollars are needed in order to support, you know, all the activity and the salaries and so forth. And so a lot depends on, and it's that chicken and egg thing. Do you sell enough copies? Do you get enough eyeballs in order to, you know, charge what you charge? Whereas digital is also um, analytic, analytics driven, you know, you can give exact data. Um, so, you know, a print is, is quite challenged and may have to shift in, in how it, how it operates. Um, you know, big publishing companies have expensive premises. They have, um, you know, all sorts of overheads. And, and yet, you know, so magazines carry a lot of costs and, and how they can then um, make money and whether the, the owners of those companies are prepared to continue to support them um, will be really interesting. I think over the next 18 months, we'll see some shifts yeah, and I mean, even prior to this situation, we have seen a lot of changes in very recently, like huge changes in the way magazines are structured and teams and everything. Yeah, yeah it's, um, I mean, speaking of change, what implications do you think will come as far as design because of COVID-19? <laughs> Well, I think that's still to be determined. I mean, I think people are spending more time in, and I know uh, even though I work from home as a freelancer, you focus on your home in a different way. Mm. So people might um, have that more sense of home as sanctuary. How can I, instead of just looking at it as maybe as real estate or something where they're for here for a few years and then moving on, maybe they will look at how to actually, um, you know, 
improve it, make it feel more fit for their family. Worry a bit less about resale and yes, exactly, and and maybe think, okay, we're here for you know the foreseeable future. What can we do to enhance it to make us feel um, better about the place? They'll you know do up that bathroom that they've been thinking about or whatever. So it, so it could be an interesting time both for design and and architecture. It also, I guess, matters how much money is around, you know, and if people are worried about their jobs or if people are worried about their super funds or, or whatever that might be. So I think there is a sort of uncertainty that's, but I think creative people are used to being adaptive and, and you know, um, kind of, you know, you're not in, in it, especially freelance people like us, you know, you're not in a job where you just know that that paycheck's coming in. You've got to be creative about how you operate and how you earn money and how you interact. So I think creative people are quite well placed in terms of actually um, being, I know the word agile is much mocked, but, you know, and actually having a bit of um, flexibility in how they think about their life and how they think about what they can do and so forth. So I think cre- creativity could find a good place moving forward. That's very inspired. It's very hopeful. Yeah. yeah. Positive thinking. <laughs> and so what's on the cards for um, for you for the for 2020? You should know there's no more books coming up. So uh, what else are you working on? Well, we've been working quite a lot through edited on helping people with their branding, and it's been mostly in the architecture and interior design space. And that's something I really like because you sort of draw on those editor skills of, you know, who's your audience? What are you giving them at present? What do you what do you need to do in order to um, get to the audience you want? Um, a lot of it is about imagery, how these brands represent themselves and design, how they, um, not just the images, but how those images are shown on a website or an Instagram or whatever. So I find that a lot of those old editing skills are actually really useful in how these businesses brand and communicate. You know, what is the tone of their website? What is the tone of their Instagram and so forth? So so it involves a bit of an analysis. It involves, you know, competitor analysis, the customer analysis, and then looking at how they can better meet not only where they are at present, but the kind of work that they would like to do in the future. So it, it it's a it's a really kind of useful exercise and and most of the people we work with are in a good good position but they've been busy and they've taken their eye off the ball and they know that maybe they're not quite up to speed in how they you know the brand looks so um yeah, so we, we've been we've been doing a number of of those. I work with um, a colleague, Jane Ferguson, who was at Bauer as a publisher, and so we have different skills. I'm more editorial; she's more, you know, marketing. And um, so it, it's a, a really good team to have um, that thinking around your business. We know that that market pr- pretty well. Yeah. I like my journalism, you know, I do a good column in Good Weekend, which the book sizes are too small at the moment. So that's um, been put on hold until things pick up. And um, my Bell architecture series, I really love because that just allows me to interview, um, you know, really interesting architects, both locally and and overseas. And um, then we've been sort of, um, you know, curating some 
oh, I've got a wonderful job where I'm curating uh, a, an enormous kind of shelving system for a client in, in Mossman, which allows me to spend lots of time on Etsy, um, yeah. <laughs> looking at ceramics and um that that kind of thing. So this, as John has said, this variety of projects is really interesting. I also do um, work with Robert Plum and Danger Baron oh, yes. Smith and um, the building company Robert Plum Build, who works with a lot of of the of architects. So yeah, everything yeah. kind of feeds into the same sort of space. Um, but um, and and I also I've got to a stage in life where. I work with people that I like. Yeah. Um, it makes a huge difference if you like and admire what they do because then it doesn't feel like work. It feels um, easy and collaborative and um, you feel like you're supporting people that you f- feel you know you value and you think are talented and deserve support. So that that's a really good filter for me and something that right from I left news I knew I wanted to work with people that that I like and it's proved to be a very good um guide guiding principle. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. And it's also it just makes sense as well. <laughs> it just makes utter sense. Yes. And and so sometimes um yeah, you say no. I, I find it hard to say no, actually, but I, I'm getting getting better at that. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess, does that bring us into Fast Five, fast five everybody? Five. All right. So, number one, what is the best piece of advice that you've received? The best piece of advice I got was when I was at Redwood Publishing and there was a woman there called Ellen Brush who was head of production. And I sort of had a notion that if I kept my head down and worked really hard and, and never said anything, that eventually someone would recognize um, that I was good and I would be tapped on the shoulder and given a pay rise and given a new job. And what she taught me was that you got to know when to put yourself forward. I mean, obviously, the time has got to be right and it's you've got to judge your skill set and so forth. But she give me the confidence to kind of take things to a next step as opposed to, you know, sit shyly by and, and hope that if you, you know, work to 12 o'clock every night that um, that someone will see it. They'll, they'll see it and just think, oh, that's great. We're getting great value out of that person. <laughs> uh, and yeah. the other thing was a quote when I was leaving um, Murdoch um, magazines and Marie Claire Lifestyle to go to inside out and there was a um a guy who d- does a daily quote or did then a daily quote and, and the one that came up then was jump and the net will find you and I really like that because I think you know it's so easy to be really cautious but then if you kind of go all right I'm just going to do this mostly it, it, it's okay so um yeah those are two useful bits of advice yeah yeah I love that that's cool what inspires and motivates you, especially in these strange days at home? What, what's getting you through the day? I don't find it hard at all, I have to admit. I mean, what, I, what I'm trying to do is, um, I mean, I went through a phase where I couldn't, I was kind of constantly distracted. I kept reading another New York Times depressing article and, and mm. so forth. But now I'm trying to make it beneficial. So we've completely with my daughter we've kind of worked to clear a new area every day and so our linen cupboard looks great we've cleared out the study (laughs) we're um, blowing out things and giving things to charity and just trying to kind of emerge from it with a home that feels lighter and more 
yeah, exactly. Um, and then, you know, every day something comes along. I was approached by an American travel magazine, interestingly, that wanted me to write something. And um, the Bell Coco Republic um, Interior Design Awards, which have actually been really time consuming. I've been spending the last few days, you know, when that reminds me of, of, of how much fascinating, amazing talent we have in this country um, when it comes to interior design. Um, and, and so each day there, there's something, you know, we have the dogs, which we yeah. have to get out and walk. Um, and so today, I'm actually amazed how quickly the day goes. Um, and and um, I sort of feel, did I really get enough done? Of course, like everyone else, I've been watching Tiger King and a great <laughs> British show called Capture, which I couldn't recommend enough. Um, so, yeah, the, the days the days are pretty good. And, you know, as a family, we've enjoyed being together. My son's just moved out um, and... But we've had very nice times, very nice dinners. I'm not a cook, but I've been p- assisting uh, my daughter cook, and that's been nice. And so, yeah, some family things, some quite simple things, but it's been actually, you know, given that um, it's such an awful situation for so many people, we definitely can't complain. Yeah. Very true. Oh, well, speaking of dinner, so who would be your dream dinner party? I thought about this one quite a lot because it's it's so easy to go, oh, Michelle Obama and um, da, da, da. And then I thought, I, I don't, what I would really find genuinely fascinating is if you could have your ancestors at a dinner table, <laughs> you know, wow, starting with yeah. my grandparents on my father's side that I, I didn't ever know. And, um, you know, you could go back a few generations and it would just be fascinating to see where their commonalities, what those people were like, what their lives would like, what hardships they suffered. Um, what joys they had, what so I, I think that something it might be a bit unruly, but um, I think that that would be that. a really fascinating thing to I, do. I completely agree. You don't need to go very far to like to find a really fascinating story. Um, yeah, you know, sad, happy, tragic, whatever. And I think yeah, yeah. Those, those, that's I, I guess why that ancestry dot com does so well because people have just got this you know, immense curiosity about where we all emerge from. Yeah. I know you don't want to dwell on the past too much when it comes to work. <laughs> so with that being said, what are some of your career highlights? <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, I, I have really um, in, enjoyed, you know, every every bit of it, you know, Marie Claire lifestyle inside out, my time at Temple and Webster, um and and the book so each of them you know has a place but sort of as I said before it's out of all of these things each time you gather a few people that you know better people that you meet um people that you learn from because you know every time I'd interview an architect I would come away with this tremendous sense of knowledge you know just sitting listening to them and of course every time I left I think if I had a house that's who I would like to build it and then I'd be on the next one and of course I'd be on to on to that one because they're thinking and philosophies and those kind of things are, are, are fascinating so I think it's this idea of the relationships that you pull into your life through each of these experiences like I talked to Jackie Frank the other day who was the editor of Mary Claire Lifestyle for all those years and who gave me my first job I like that you retain 
relationships as you go along, because in a way they become the sum of the parts of what your life is. You know, the 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 output, the magazines and the books, they're one thing, but it's this this sense of how do we enrich our enrich our lives and meet new people as we get older. And um, the books certainly have have been you know provided a, a lot of that for me. Um, you know, we now have new friends in in France and, um, you know, people I'd never met before in Sydney and they introduce you to new people. And so you get this kind of layering of people um, that, that, that to me is the reward that those are, those are the highlights. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. It's just really special. And the last one. So for when you're allowed to travel again, (laughs) what is your favorite design destination in the world? Well, we were meant to go, we were meant to, be there pretty much now we were going to go i uh we were going to go to the milan furniture fair and then we were going to go um to bordeaux and to paris and for me it's all about the markets i booked um bordeaux twice a year has a big gigantic brocant and i'd booked for us to stay next to it so we could be there super early on the opening day and um and the same then in Paris to go to the markets there. So really, it, it's um, Paris and Bordeaux for the for the markets. But I think Antwerp has amazing markets, and apparently Lille has an amazing market. And so, yeah, I, I'm drawn anywhere that has a really big market. That's my yeah, ideal. Yeah, you're back to your roots. Back to your roots. My roots. Yeah, markets. <laughs> you can't take the market out of the girl. That's exactly <laughs> right. I love that. That's so cool. Awesome. Well, Karen, thank you so much for chatting with us. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. You're a very, very important and special person in specifically the Australian design industry. I think people really admire everything and appreciate everything you've done for the industry. Thank you. It's been lovely to talk about it all. Thank you to Globe West for supporting women in design. Thank you so much to Karen for joining us on the House of Style. You can follow Karen on Instagram at McCartneyK. For more info and to see our style edit inspired by Karen's books, click the link in the description for our website. You can find us on Instagram at House of Style Podcast. Tell your friends and don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. And thanks for stopping by the House of Style. <laughs>